On this adventurous episode of StarPod Log, we consider the contents of StarLog magazine from 1981 in issues 47 and 48. Mark Newbold talks about the Star Wars radio play. Paul Mount gives us the lowdown on the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy creator, Douglas Adams. Kirby Bartlett Sloan helps us to catch up on Doctor Who. Main Man Jamie discusses comics of the early 80s. Burt Bruce considers the amazing work of John Carpenter. Joe Molinaro fills us in on what George Lucas was up to on the Skywalker Ranch. Plus, Superman's Sarah Douglas. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Board games. And more on this episode of... Star Log. Greetings and felicitations. Hip hip hurrah, tally ho. Hey cutie pie. Hey puddin. I'm Nayar. And I'm Kavora. If this is your first time listening to us, welcome. We grew up in the 70s and 80s and love classic science fiction and retro pop culture. On each episode of our show, we consider the contents in two issues of Starlog magazine and discuss what fandom was like years ago. But we leave the Star Trek-related content to our other podcast, StarPod Trek. Feel free to follow along with your personal copy of Starlog magazine or read it for free online at archive.org. If you would like to comment on a subject or give us feedback, please send an audio file to us at starpodlog at gmail.com. Who knows? We might include your comments on a future episode. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your podcast app and look for us on YouTube for bonus content and media reviews. Feel free to join our Facebook group, too. We look forward to meeting our listeners at the following upcoming conventions. Music City Multicon is coming up October 29th through 31st. Lebanon, Tennessee. Awesome convention if you love video games. Join us at ShadowCon January 6th through 8th. Memphis, Tennessee. A lot of fun going on at ShadowCon. Starlog Magazine, issue number 47, cover date June 1981. Communications, letters to Starlog Magazine. Doom? Cull? Conan? Steve Ray Terry from Beaver Creek, Ohio says, Something is wrong. Someone made an error. I am referring, of course, to the article on the Conan movie and log entries of Starlog 43. It states that in the beginning of the movie, Conan is reflecting on the pursuit of revenge against Thulsa Doom, the high priest of Set and the cold-blooded murderer of Conan's father and mother. Now, I don't pretend to know what happens in the movie, but I do know that in none of the books does Conan ever meet Thulsa Doom. Starlog comments by saying, As is the case with most comics being adapted to movies, the producers are making liberal changes with the mythos. Conan happens to be deeply steeped in the detailed chronology as created by Robert E. Howard in the pulps and developed by Roy Thomas in the comics. Others are following the chronology in the comics and new novels, but 
Dino De Laurentiis has chosen to abandon the mythology in favor of bringing Thulsa Doom out of the King Cull stories that were set 500 years before Conan's time for the movie. This should give some idea of what to expect. Now, this is true. Thulsa Doom was not a Conan enemy, but one of Cull the Conqueror. Curious how they were taking liberties with comic films even back then. Well, we know that happened in Superman the movie as well, changing some things around. Yeah, it's a common thing with movies. I mean, I think I, I even knew it back then. The, the funny thing is, if the internet was active then, people would be losing their minds over this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Log entries. Latest news from the worlds of science fiction and fact. Heavy Metal makes its move. When we last reported on the Heavy Metal animated feature film, it was still being set up, animated, and finalized. Since then, distribution has been obtained, scripts have been completed, and the production will be done in time for the film's release during the third week of August. There will be an impressive lineup of Heavy Metal and New Wave rock bands to perform original songs for the movie. The soundtrack album will be released by Elektra sometime this summer. At the moment, the band signed include The Who, Devo, Stevie Nicks, and Tom Petty, Blue Oyster Cult, Cheap Trick, and Black Sabbath. I think it's interesting that they were promoting this movie, which was based somewhat on the heavy metal magazine, which had nothing to do with music. It was an anthology of science fiction and fantasy stories. But I think that the timing of it was perfect because MTV had just started that year as well. So this mixing of visual imagery and storytelling with popular music, the timing couldn't be better. And I think that's that's why they wanted to do it. You have a magazine called Heavy Metal. Well, let's make a movie out of it with heavy metal music. And, of course, it was a very adult movie, too, not for kids, even though it was animated. Um, maybe the first idea of an animated movie rated R. Superman 2 Movie Magazine With Superman 2 ready to open in next month, many businesses are bustling with activity, especially the Man of Steel's publishers, DC Comics. We outlined most of DC's publishing plans last issue, but here's more. Movie magazines, and we're talking official movie magazines. That is a thing we don't see anymore because if you go to newsstands you will see movie magazines based on current movies but if you look at it they're really not official yeah now they they just have it with where the reporters trying to get what they can about the movies um all the official stuff seems to be released online or at san diego comic-con yeah and this was an era when i really liked the official movie magazines and knowing that dc was involved in producing these things they, they were just so exciting to me Comics inflate. It may turn out to be the shortest time between price increases in the comic industry. Just 13 months after raising its prices to 50 cents, DC Comics announced in March that comics going on sale in July, October cover dated, will cost 60 cents. Oh boy, might be able to pay the mortgage that month. Yeah, these small increases, even though people do notice them. The funny thing is, we just bought a comic the other day, and we noticed, boy, $8 cover price now for some comics? 
Yeah, they, they've really gone up. They've gone bananas now. But this was newsworthy item back in 1981 for a 10 cent increase. It goes on to say Marvel Comics currently offers 21 pages of story for 50 cents. According to Editor-in-Chief Jim Shooter, it does not plan on following DC's suit. Well, you know, it, it does counter it by saying the DC comics are 27 pages, where the Marvel comics are 21 pages. So, for the extra 10 cents, you do get more page count. Right, yeah, and I wonder if people really noticed that. I mean, these were for kids. They probably didn't care. I know during this time, I was loving Teen Titans. The The new Teen Titans? I was getting new Teen Titans, and probably around this time, too, Firestorm might have debuted, I think. I was reading DC Comics in 1981. Yeah, I, I read the new Teen Titans. They were great. Hello again, this is Mark Newbold from Star Wars Insider Magazine, StarWars.com, and most often, Fanthatracks.com. Talking about the Star Wars radio plays, launched in 1981 on NPR. They started broadcasting the first week of March on 243 member stations in the United States and its territories. There were 13 half-hour episodes. As I remember, in the UK, they got stripped down into small chunks and played on Radio 1 at lunchtimes. Not many people remember that. They were produced by NPR, as we say, in association with KUSC-FM in Los Angeles and Lucasfilm, of course. The rights were donated, quite famously by Lucasfilm, to KUSC, which was a station that was affiliated with his old-school USC. They gave them the radio rights to public radio, but also the music as well, and the sound effects. That, in the story of the Star Wars radio dramas, is quite key, because it completely legitimises these radio dramas as a, as a very important part of Lucasfilm and Star Wars history. There's six and a half hours given to the movie, which means that we get to see stuff in or hear stuff in the radio drama that we didn't see in the film. So, for example, in one episode, Princess Leia was travelling to Alderaan to meet her father prior to the mission that results in her capture by Darth Vader. Now, of course, we know elements that may be contradicted by Rogue One, but that was getting on for 40 years later. Another episode dealt with Luke's life on Tatooine and his friends, the classic Toshi Station-style stuff with Cammy and Fixer and so on and so forth. Predominantly, his relationship with Biggs. But there was also episodes of how Otto and 3PO met... Incredibly, Han and Chewie's encounter with the Tatooine underworld, more stuff of conflicts that are affecting the Empire. So the radio drama really had the scope and you know an unlimited budget really to expand on what we saw purely in the first film. And also bear in mind, Empire Strikes Back has been out a year at the cinemas at this time. Neither are on home video in 1981. So this really is essential listening for Star Wars fans. Mark Hamill was particularly excited about these episodes. He did speak to Starlog at the premiere at the Griffith Observatory. What a great place to have a premiere. And Hamill said, It appealed to me because it wasn't money-orientated. It sprang purely from the desire to help revitalise interest in radio. I feel bad that toys are expensive and kids can't afford to buy a glow-in-the-dark Yoda or whatever. I know that George feels strongly about the criticism that the movie has been too commercial and over-merchandised. Wow, think about that 40 years on. This is one way that we can pay back and do something for the fans. This will be free over radio. It's not only great for the kids who can't afford the 4 or $5 to see the movie, but also for shut-ins. There are shut-ins I get letters from who say they have heard the records and all of that, but they've never seen the film. Imagine, you've heard the Star Wars soundtrack, you've read the comics, you're not able to get out, you've never seen the film, but this is a way to connect with that movie. The radio shows are great because you can take them into your mind. Again, 
this is the era of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy on radio where it completely exploded for the BBC. For visual effects, you need a budget of millions of dollars. There is no budget on imagination. Fantastic line, no budget on imagination. Then chuckling he adds, and you don't have fully matte lines in your imagination. <laughs> Anthony Daniels felt very much the same way. In radio, he said, you can sit there and make the screening just how you want it, and therefore it's stimulating. You can sit at home and have the whole galaxy whizzing around your head. Very true. The boundaries, the scope, it's not widescreen or panoramic vision. It's bigger than that. It's as immersive as you want it to be. Perry King played Han Solo, and he said, I think the difference is the same as between movies and books. You have to use your imagination in radio. Your imagination has an unlimited budget. Very much the same with comments. You can see 10,000 very real-looking spaceships in your mind. On film, you are limited to the film's budget, even a film like Star Wars. He mentions going further, obviously Harrison Ford originated the part, but was committed to the project, so couldn't do it. I don't know why they chose me. I'm very different from Harrison Ford. Long-time listeners to the radio dramas will know and have seen pictures of Perry King, and yes, doesn't particularly sound like Harrison Ford. I would argue he's every bit as much Han Solo as Harrison Ford. He does a great performance in the radio dramas, which is very much its own thing. At first he thought, Perry King thought, he would go back and watch Star Wars and Empire to try and recreate the character that Ford did in the movies. He says, then I realised I couldn't even do it if I wanted to, so I decided to start from scratch. I don't think my Han Solo bears any resemblance to the one created by Harrison. He sees the character of somebody who seems to be a very tough, cynical guy who doesn't care about anything. He's the classical character who has within him a heart of gold. Harrison played it as someone who showed nothing. I played it as someone who actively attacks the world, who actively tries to cover the fact that he cares a great deal about other people and what is happening to them. That kind of plays into Solo as well, which we got years later. And I I do wonder, as other projects came along over the decades, and this is before Jedi, they were making Jedi at this time, but this is before Jedi and everything else we got, how these radio dramas influenced future writing because that does feel very much in the wheelhouse of what we got in Lawrence Kasdan's solo he says the character hasn't been written differently but it is acted differently it's the same character says Perry King but obviously there's a lot of material that was never shot for the film and a lot was shot and then cut out listening to this program people would get an opportunity to hear a lot of original stuff that got lost in the editing room that is fascinating absolutely fascinating Bernard Behrens who played Oberon Kenobi he didn't have as much of a problem deciding not to emulate the original actor playing the role He's one of the few people left in the world who has never seen Star Wars. So the guy that plays Obi-Wan had never seen Star Wars, kind of beautifully. I thought the possibility of seeing it, he says, during the premiere party, then I changed my mind because I didn't want to become patterned after Alec Guinness. What I did before starting work on the show was to read the book, essential Alan Dean Foster's ghost-written version of Star Wars that says it's written by George Lucas, but isn't. Still, not having seen the movie, I did have some difficulties, especially since Mark Hamill and Anthony Daniels had a sort of style I wasn't able to capture right away. Imagine that, you've got two of the leads of the film right there in the booth with you. He admits, I messed up one day and we had to retape it. It worked much better the second time. The director, John Madden, is an incredible man. He worked wonders with all of us. John Madden, who would later go on to direct Shakespeare in Love. After the programmes were completed, Behrens did go and see the movie. I found out that my portrayal of Obi-Wan Kenobi was completely different. He, meaning Alec Guinness, is much older than I am for one thing. And also, in actual spoken words, Ben Kenobi didn't have that much to say in the movie. In radio, he has a tremendous amount to say because you have to put into words what people see visually on the screen. That's another great point. It's a bit like audio dramas that we listen to regularly from Random House now. The way the characters speak, like in comics, the way characters speak in the comics, I don't think, personally, don't think you can take verbatim what they're saying. It's a stylized version of what happens to fit the format. 
So radio drama format is one thing. Verbal words in comics, that's another. Going back to Mark Hamill, he also found that he was doing much more talking on the radio. It's like acting on a soap opera, he says. Of course, he was on General Hospital for years. You find you are constantly talking about other people. An inordinate amount of time you spent saying, oh, say, did he hear about? And then, no. In radio, you have to talk about the things that people can't see. The dialogue in Star Wars was hard enough to go back and do it all over again, take shifting into a special gear for me. Bear in mind, he's already made Empire at this point. He's gearing up for Jedi. Then to have it made harder by having to identify the aliens. Oh, look, isn't that... Perry King added that doing the radio programme was weird because if you're not making noise, in some sense, you no longer exist. To stay alive in radio, you do it by continuing to be there vocally. If you're not vocally there, it's as if you left the screen. That's a great point. John Madden, the director, kept advising us to constantly keep some sort of vocal life going. It was very hard to remember, so I guess mumbling and murmuring in the background and so on and so forth. Now, this is quite funny. Anthony Daniels here mentions closeting himself in an isolation booth to recreate the robotic voice of the android he played in the movie. Quick aside, I interviewed Anthony for Star Wars Insider magazine about three years ago, and he was still doing vocal work on The Rise of Skywalker. And whilst I was there, sitting on his sofa, drinking tea and biscuits, the classic cliche, he took a phone call on his iPhone, and it was from J.J. Abrams, who had sent him some dialogue on the phone and asked him to record it that evening and... Anthony explained that he had a closet. I'm assuming he was probably living in the same house at this point. Had a, a room, a small closeted room that he put drapes and curtains up to dampen the sound. He was doing that back in 1981. It was very funny to watch Tony Daniels chuckles Perry King because he would go through incredible gymnastics all by himself just to program himself to what was going on. He looked like a madman, so he's, he's doing the whole 3PO moves. For Hamill, it was very difficult to go back to Luke Skywalker in that first movie. Thank God it was radio, he says. I'm not a teenager anymore. And I had to go back to that sort of golly kind of scooter guy. This was something I worked so hard to change in Empire. And it is, as you say, you go back to those two performances, there's quite a difference. Jedi, again, a big step up. It was also hard to adjust to the cast members. It changes your whole rhythm because Perry King doesn't work in the same rhythm as Harrison Ford, which makes me have to keep remembering how to do the part. I also had trouble because I was real conscious of the crew. I'd start... You don't believe in the Force, do you? Then the boom guy starts to smile. Sometimes I had to really close my eyes to get into character and not think about the people looking at me. Usually, though, when the red light goes on and they're recording, you start to empty everything else from your mind. You have to totally believe it yourself or nobody else will. One thing that Obi-Wan Kenobi actor Bernard Behrens struggled with, he says, was believing in an invisible Chewbacca. We had to play our scenes with Chewbacca without any background sound. We had to imagine that we had a conversation with Chewie and there was nobody talking back. The grunts and several other strange sounds he makes were put in later. Those sounds, the music, the other audio effects were added to the broadcast tapes in the Minneapolis studios of Tom Vagley. There's been here various hints and rumours alluding to a possible second series on The Empire Strikes Back, which of course we know came to pass, as did Jedi back in 96 before Brian Daly sadly passed away, who worked on adapting these radio drama episodes. I think they plan to have another series, says Perry King. I think they're probably hoping to do as many as there are films. That is the hope. It's also the hope of Mark Hamill that the radio show's present and future is successful. And if they want me, he says, they know where to get me. Well, they got him for Empire. Sadly, they didn't get him for Jedi. He wasn't available. But fascinating look back at an era of Star Wars when there wasn't that much of it around. And what we did get was absolutely essential and key. So if you've never listened to the Star Wars radio drama, go back and listen to it. As I say, six and a half hours. All of it's glorious. And move on to Empire. Slightly shorter, not as long. Jedi again, not as long. All very, very worthwhile. Do you like scary movies? What about science fiction and cult films? 
then please visit Shocking Things. You can search for us on your favorite podcatcher. You can also go to anchor.fm slash shocking things for the main hub for the links to episodes and our social media. Now try and enjoy the daylight. Shocking Things. Hello, this is Paul Mount, recording in the UK. And in this episode, I'm looking at issue 47 of Starlog magazine, published in June 1981, which contains Susan Adamo's um, extremely interesting and quite poignant interview with Douglas Adams. Now, for those who don't know, and I'm sure you all do, Douglas Adams was the creator of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which became an absolute cultural phenomenon in the UK, almost immediately when it was first broadcast on Radio 4, BBC Radio 4, in 1978. It spawned an enormous cottage industry of spin-off books, plays, records, TV series, and eventually a feature film version. Douglas Adams himself was an interesting man. He was a Cambridge Footlights alumni, and he was a genius. Uh, And I think that's a word that's too often bandied around for people who are talented but maybe don't have that extra bit. Douglas Adams had that extra bit. In fact, he had several. During his life, um, his tragically short life, um, he was prolific in his own strange way. He was interested in the environment. Um, He was very, very, very early adopter of computer technology. That was one of his great obsessions. And he had a love for fast cars. And why not? Because he had the money. His first uh, claim to fame then, of course, was, as I said, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the science fiction comedy which sort of married satire on outrageous ideas um was just a phenomenon it's the really is the only word to describe the impact it was such a phenomenon the bbc repeated it almost immediately and it was repeated four times and was followed by a subsequent five-part series that was broadcast on five consecutive nights such was the importance of it and he then went on of course to work on doctor who he supplied um, a raft of bizarre and again, extremely imaginative episodes of Doctor Who. At a time when the show was fighting against ever-shrinking budgets, he created the story The Pirate Planet, which was part of the Key to Time season, season 16 of Doctor Who, which was a story about a hollow planet um, transmitting across the universe, sucking the life out of other planets and extracting all their mineral deposits. He wrote The Extravagant City of Death in 1979, still regarded as one of the best of the classic Doctor Who stories, um, and he was involved in the series then as the script editor the following year, when the budgets shrank even further. And even though that's not one of the best series of Doctor Who, it's still characterised by his enormous imagination in, in commissioning thrilling, imaginative and adventurous stories. Looking at this interview from 1981, as I said, the, these interviews that I, I look at for Starlog are always very poignant and always very sad, because they almost inevitably involve people who are no longer with us because these interviews are 40 years old and uh, it makes you appreciate the passage of time and how we should cherish people when they're around and and really appreciate what they give us Um, and Douglas Adams here it's amazing to read this interview he was actually 29 at this point and he'd already achieved more than most people do in double that lifetime Um, but it's just amazing to think that he was (laughs) the cusp of such greatness that exceeded even the greatness he had achieved. And the interview is, is very straightforward. He just explains that story, which I have always thought is slightly apocryphal, where the idea of the Hitchhiker's Galaxy came to him when he was lying in a field drunk in Europe. 
outside Innsbruck. I, I'm never sure if I really believe that story, but it's one that he trotted out on more than one occasion and how the idea for the story and the, and the audios and the books and so on sprang from that idea. And he goes on to explain about how difficult it was to get the thing done, how he worked on American television with his producer, John Lloyd, to do a show for Ringo Starr. And the whole interview is suffused with this extraordinary energy and enthusiasm for his work. I've read several biographies of Douglas Adams, and I've seen many interviews with him, where many of his contemporaries, his producers and so on, people who work with him creatively, expressed a certain frustration at his work ethic, which was panic, <laughs> just absolute panic at having to do this work and get it done. But ultimately, I think being pleased of what he'd achieved. The stories are legion about how and in fact, it's repeated here in this, in this interview, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy TV series was commissioned just as he was commissioned to write the Pirate Planet for Doctor Who. And the following year, whilst working on the Hitchhiker's book and the second series, he became Doctor Who's script editor. And there's an interesting little part of the article where he explains how difficult it is or was at the time commissioning 26 workable Doctor Who scripts and how he felt that on Doctor Who's tiny budget, 26 was just too much. Of course, these days we have Doctor Who series that are often 12 or 10 episodes and they're a struggle to make. It's, it's a show that's difficult to make, even when it's well-resourced as it is these days. But all in all, this is just an interesting look at somebody who is at the cusp of this greatness and who even here he's talking about computer graphics on the TV version of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and how that became such a passion and an obsession for him in later life, in later years as he carried on through his career, uh, and he talks briefly about the TV series, the difficulties of making the TV series, and uh, his his firm belief that there will be a second TV series, which of course there never was, and the film version eventually arrived years, years after he passed away, tragically, in uh, May 2001, at the age of just 49. And that's the real tragedy of this particular interview. It's It's interesting, it's thorough, this is at a time when a lot of people didn't really know who Douglas Adams was, particularly in America. And it's always interesting to read these interviews of people at the beginning of their careers who are just finding their way and finding their feet and expressing themselves and voicing their imaginations. And it's just sad to think that he's no longer with us because he achieved a lot in his life and I think he would probably have achieved quite a lot more. But tragically, as I say, taken away from us before his 50th birthday. It's a fascinating interview as these interviews always are, because it gives us a little insight into people whose names are now written in legend when they were just finding their feet. Sarah Douglas, the human-hating Kryptonian supervillainess from Superman 2. All right, what were your first impressions of her character in Superman 2, Ursa? I always loved Ursa. Yeah, I loved her, her qualities, like her mannerisms, the way she. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, yeah, so deliciously evil. <laughs> uh, it's so funny. She goes on to say she was born in Stratford upon Avon, the birthplace of Shakespeare, and there was an incredible community surrounding the the nurturing of theater. So that was the environment she was brought up in. But she had no idea who Superman was. She kind of knew that there was a TV show, a black and white TV show. But she said in her area, Superman was not a big deal. 
Yeah, that is interesting too. I guess it took a while before he caught on in England. But I know that, um, you know, like Jason Carter from Babylon 5, he's British. And what, well, what he said is that when he grew up, he kind of always thought Superman was gay. So he did know Superman somewhat. <laughs> <laughs> okay. She talks about the differences, the directing styles of Richard Donner and Richard Lester. They both had different styles of how that they would direct, but they both worked equally well in developing her character. And she said she was hired for the part because she was feisty, and they wanted someone to be able to have that unique quality. All the things they had to do to transform her, though, were amazing. She expresses how she had freckles, and they wanted no freckles to be shown. She had long hair, which she didn't want to cut, so they took it over an hour to tuck her hair into a wig. And the difficulties of the flying scenes. How it was hard for her to be suspended on wires for hours upon end. Yeah, it's an interesting interview. And, I mean, I've seen her on other things. I don't remember. Like, I never noticed she had freckles. <laughs> but uh, but that is interesting. And it, it took her so long in the makeup chair after... Because all of, all of this stuff, all of the makeup and the hair and everything. And she she was just beautiful in the movie i mean mm-hmm. so they they did a good job i loved how she looked and and they even talked about the costume trying to make it more feminine and with her well they said showing cleavage and you know and i like adding that like the cutouts in her sleeves and the the legs it it was just a great costume in the movie and she said purposely it was supposed to be designed to titillate young people as well as grandparents i'm like <laughs> hey it worked as a kid i thought she was hot yeah that is neat um and about how they talked about she talks about that it there wasn't supposed to be like it wasn't supposed to be to look sexual between her and zod even though they were supposed to be married in the movie interesting isn't it yeah it was and i never i never thought of that but yeah but they're just perfectly evil they're they're trying to take over the world, and that's really all they're thinking about. Even though her husband, I think he did call her my dear, but but that was it. It wasn't in an offensive way. I never got way. that connection. Yeah, that they, they were really just um, working together, but not you know, yeah, not really an affection for each other is shown in the movies. Another curiosity: she said that she was one of Marlon Brando's cue cards because Marlon Brando was known for not being able to remember his lines and so she would put his lines on her forehead and he would look at her forehead to read his lines yeah and she she didn't (laughs) mind doing that (laughs) everybody else has to learn their lines that marlon brando gets the free ride yeah because he's the star and and the thing is she, she admired him so much that she she must have just wanted to help him any way she could remember she said that she said she was starstruck that she was working with marlon brando it's funny to hear other stars being fans of other stars. Well, yeah, but she wasn't a star at this time. But You're right, yeah, you're right. Yeah, so yeah. she was just a big fan of his. Uh, and she was sitting on his lap. He said, come here, sit on my lap. And she said she did. <laughs> <laughs> she said she learned a lot from Gene Hatman on the set as well. I mean, when we think about it, we view her as iconic in her roles, not only in Superman, but also in Liar Liar. Yeah, she, she did never other admire, stuff. Liar, liar. Yeah. Remember, remember when? Remember when you made fun of me for saying that to her? <laughs> we met her at Superman Celebration. Yeah, she went on to do other things. Yeah, we've seen her at cons, and she was in she was in Conan, and yep. she was in V: The Final Battle, which I loved. Yes, yeah. 
But for some reason, I mixed her up with the actress that was in Liar Liar, the one that the bosses really ride in me. And I just said, I liked you in Liar Liar. And she, she just laughed in my face. She didn't correct me at all. And you, and you were like, why'd you say that? I was like, wasn't she in Liar Liar? No. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but she said she Jean, working with Gene Hatman was fantastic because she learned a lot from him, and he was a fun guy to work. Yeah, he he probably was, and they had some, yeah, they had their good scenes together. Well, well, so she didn't really talk about um, Christopher Reeve in this interview, so I wonder how how they got along, and and her her relationship with uh with Lois Lane in the movie. I mean, I like how she she went after Lois. Mm-hmm. That was just um. I don't know, that was interesting to see. It must have been something, some kind of thing they were trying to work out, you know, let, let us take his favorite and those kind of lines. Mm-hmm. And Lois calling her sister. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a good part. Yeah, she added so much to the movie. She's one character that if you, if you removed her, the movie would have a whole different feel. Oh yeah, she was, she was, um, an integral part of it. <laughs> At 11 o'clock, it's time for Space Fantasy with Doctor Who in a movie-length adventure, The Sunmakers. Join the fun when Doctor Who returns as part of the new Sunday night lineup on 11. I'm Kirby Bartlett Sloan, one of the co-hosts of the 20 Megabyte Doctor Who podcast. I'm going to talk about the last three seasons of Tom Baker as the Doctor. I mentioned last time that Starlog issue 46 mentioned that the last 74 episodes of The Fourth Doctor will be airing soon in the States. In issue 47, cover date June 1981, they get into the nitty-gritty of what these episodes will be like with a sneak preview. The authors of the article did a pretty good job of giving the very lightest of teases at the upcoming stories. Let's look closer. The article tells us that season 16 would have the Doctor looking for something called the Key to Time, and that the new companion would be a Time Lady named Romana, or Fred, that the Doctor would have a somewhat antagonistic relationship with. To me, watching The Key to Time was one of my most exciting times to be a newly minted Uvian. I had heard of it from my library research of British magazines and going through the relevant issues of Radio Times. New Doctor Who episodes instead of ones we had been seeing over and over. Wow! A new companion who was also from Gallifrey. A season-long story arc. Take that, New Who, long before Bad Wolf and Vote Saxon. The show was following something that would take six stories to tell the tale. And even a Douglas Adams pen story. I was so excited. These were also among the last stories I was able to watch before my access to a PBS station showing Who was cut off. I saw the Ribos operation on August 23, 1981, as a set of all four episodes. I was so taken by Romana that a couple of years later I had named the mainframe computer in my first programming job, Fred, in honor of Romana. What fun! The Doctor versus a con man on a medieval planet with another cheesy and fun monster, the Shrivenzal. As is a Robert Holmes story, it has one of Holmes' double-act pairs of characters, Garan and Unstaff. There's also a great bit with an exiled inhabitant of Rybos, Binro the heretic, exiled for believing that the lights in the night sky are suns, and perhaps each sun has other worlds of its own. The first segment of the key to time turns out to be a piece of Jethric that the conmen have been using in their ruse against the tyrant, Graft Vindicae. On August 30th, I saw the Pirate Planet, 
one of my all-time favorite Fourth Doctor stories, but also one of my all-time favorite stories. I had just discovered Douglas Adams' work earlier that year as the university's NPR station had broadcast The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Adams' humor was perfect paired with The Fourth Doctor. I couldn't help but notice Adams lifting his own hitchhiker's lines for use in this story. I love the battle between K-9 and the Polyface Avatron, the pirate captain's robot parrot. The segment of the key to time is the entire planet Calufrax, which had been shrunken by the captain. And by the way, every Thursday on Instagram and Facebook, I post the same thing. It must be Thursday. I never could get the hang of Thursdays with a different, always different picture from some incarnation of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I just love the Hitchhiker's Guide. Okay, back to it. I saw the Stones of Blood on September 6th, and I don't have many memories of it from those days. It's an odd little story that suffers from being really two two-part stories. One said in modern Cornwall, with the Doctor Romana being chased by monolithic rocks from a stone circle, and two parts set on a spaceship slightly out of phase with where they were in Cornwall. Clever use of green screen to make two lights flashing in sync with actors' words to be a believable antagonist to the Doctor as they are justice machines intent on executing him. The third segment of the key to time turns out to be the Great Seal of Diplos, or is it Diplos? I don't remember, which had been stolen by an ancient criminal, confusing yet entertaining. I have no memories of seeing the androids of Tara in 1981. My diary says I saw it on September 13th. My main memories are of it are from watching it just a couple of years ago for reviewing on the 20 Megabyte Doctor Who podcast. It's essentially a science fiction retelling of The Prisoner of Zenda, with the plot complicated by having android doubles for nearly every character. The fourth segment is part of a statue that Romana found in the first five minutes of the first episode. September 20th came along, and The Power of Kroll. Green screen work with the great squ- with the giant squid monster that nowadays looks very silly that I didn't mind in those days. Another Robert Holmes story, but hampered by script editor Tony Reed telling Holmes to tone down the humor. The segment had been eaten the segment of the key to time had been eaten by Kroll and the doctor extracts it from Kroll. Uh, WTTW Channel eleven split six part stories up to run over two consecutive weekends anytime they had six-part stories. So I saw the Armageddon Factor on September 27th and October 4th. This story had this vibe that kind of reminded me of Colossus, the Foreman Project, and the original Star Trek series episode is Taste of Armageddon with the fully computerized war. The final segment of the key turns out to be Princess Astra of Atrios, The Black Guardian almost gets the key to time, but the Doctor disperses the key back into space and fits a randomizer on the TARDIS, which gives the Doctor even less control than he usually has with where they end up. My diary contains a note I wrote to myself about how Drax, another Time Lord that happens to have settled on Atrios, keeps calling the Doctor by the name he was known by at the Time Lord Academy, Theta Sigma. Then we come to Season 17 where Douglas Adams was script editor. Destiny of the Daleks. I saw this story on October 11th, and it would be the last episode I ever saw on Chicago PBS. From this point on, I relied on seeing stories at conventions until I got Netflix about 20 years later and started renting the DVDs. 
I'm fond of this little Dalek story, but I've always had a problem with the Daleks being described as robots, although we saw the Dalek creatures in the story. It was so nice to see the Mavellans shown on screen again for a few seconds in the Capaldi story, The Pilot. I was amused but still moderately bothered by Romana's throwaway multiple regenerations. City of Death by David Agnew, pseudonym for David Fisher, Douglas Adams, and Graham Williams. This is my all-time favorite Doctor Who story of all incarnations. We're running through Paris, running through Paris, running through Paris. Tom and Lala at their absolute best with the best witty banter from the Doctor, probably, in the streets of Paris in the first story ever filmed outside of Britain. I was able to see this one, plus a few of the others that had recently been broadcast at a convention in Champaign, Illinois, over Thanksgiving weekend in 1981, uh, where people were hooking v- VCRs together and copying their own v- VHS tapes. Ah, another one from that weekend. Uh, Creature from the Pit. Oh my, did we laugh at this one. The silliest monster ever on Doctor Who. Look up clips of the Doctor communicating with Arato, this is the creature, and try not to laugh. Nightmare of Eden. Oddly, of all the stories from the last three seasons of The Fourth Doctor, this is the one story I never, ever saw until just three years ago when we reviewed it on the 20 Megabyte podcast. Two spacecraft merge with each other in a hyperspace accident. Drug addiction and pocket universes that can be dialed up and entered in a rather confusing story, and yet another poorly designed monster, the Mandrels. I'd seen pictures of the Mandrels for years and was unimpressed. The Horns of Naimon. Lord Naimon! This is a retelling of the Greek myth of Theseus and the Minotaur. I liked it when I first saw it at the convention, so I finally saw it again over 20 years later. My fond memories of first seeing it kept me from seeing it as a bad episode that most of fandom seems to regard it. Soldi chews the scenery throughout the story and has a hilarious death scene. The Naimons are oversized bullheads over the shoulders and heads of half-naked guys, and the Naimons shoot deadly rays from their horns. Silly fun. Not included in the PBS package mentioned in Starlog, because it is still basically unfinished. Well, of course it's unfinished. It's finished, but it's unfinished. Is Shada, which was meant to be the season finale. For being a lost story, it surprisingly has the greatest number of releases of any Who story I know of. I was made aware of it shortly after the 20th anniversary episode, The Five Doctors, because The Five Doctors had scenes from Shada used to shoehorn Tom Baker into the 20th anniversary story. I first saw Shada itself as the Flash animated version of the Big Finish audio play, where it was rewritten to feature the 8th Doctor, but still features a Romana a VHS partial reconstruction was created using the existing footage with connecting narration by Tom Baker in 1992. Shada! I finally saw it after it was released on DVD in 2013. An official animated version was released in 2017, and an unauthorized animation commissioned by, quote, superfan, unquote, Ian Levine, was created in 2011 and leaked to the internet in 2013. And yes, I have all four of these versions. 
Ah, season 18, the last of the three seasons mentioned in the Starlog article, is the first of the infamous John Nathan Turner seasons. J&T made a lot of changes to the show, many of them controversial. The fourth Doctor's costume changed to the burgundy one, complete with a burgundy scarf. Question marks would become part of the Doctor's costume for the rest of the classic run as well. Starlog calls the alternate universe that the Doctor and Romana find themselves in as exospace, which is technically correct, but it's standardly called e-space nowadays. The DVDs were released as the e-space trilogy. Except for State of Decay and Legopolis, I have only sketchy memories of seeing these stories at conventions and didn't even make copies from other people's tapes at the time. The Leisure Hive. Weird and barely watchable for me when I finally saw it for review on the 20 Megabyte podcast. I mainly remember it for being J&T's first attempt to get rid of K-9, who he didn't like, by short-circuiting him on, a be- on the beach at Brighton. Megloss. Another attempt to save money by building miniature sets and using color separation overlay to put the actors on the sets. This technique was used many times during the Tom Baker years, mostly successfully, but it didn't work for me in this story. The highlights of the story are the alien cactus monster disguising itself as the Doctor, giving us the famous Doctor's a Cactus makeup, and the return of Jacqueline Hill to the show 15 years after she left, having played one of the original companions of the first Doctor. In this one, she's playing the leader of the Deons, one of two casts of, of citizens on the planet Tegela. Next was Full Circle. The TARDIS enters e-space and picks up uh, Wesley Crusher, uh, I mean Adric, brilliant and annoying teen winner of a badge for mathematical excellence in his world, where a spacecraft had crash-landed generations before, and the crew goes through the motions of being a spacecraft crew without understanding why. This one was famously written by the, at the time, 17-year-old Doctor Who fan, Andrew Smith, who uh, I've interviewed on the 20 Megabyte Doctor Who podcast and also have heard many interviews with. He's very interesting, and it's actually not that bad a story. Uh, State of Decay. Oh, no! Another forgotten spaceship, just the next story after, this time disguised as a castle inhabited by vampires. The Three Who Rule, and The Awakening of the Great Vampire. This is a fun one to me, and one of the earliest Tom Baker stories I sought after on DVD. Warrior's Gate. Roman and Canine stay behind in e-space to help the formerly enslaved race of time-sensitive Leonin Therals. Somehow Romana later becomes Lord President of Gallifrey in the Virgin New Adventure novels during the Wilderness Years, between the classic and new series, which means she found her way out of e-space at some point, but I don't know how that happened, because I haven't read those. Next was The Keeper of Trocken, another one I never saw until we reviewed it in recent years in the 20 Megabyte podcast. Since I had seen the next story, Legopolis, many times, I was glad to finally get the backstory for how the Master returned to the show. The Union of Trocken is threatened with destruction by an evil force, but it's almost too late. The Doctor and Adric team up with Consul Tremas and his daughter Nyssa to uncover the plot by the Master, who regenerates by merging with Consul Tremas. Tremas, T-R-E-M-A-S. Master, M-A-S-T-E-R. How convenient. Then finally, we get to Tom Baker's regeneration story, Legopolis. And it's a doozy. Another one I made sure I saw during the 80s and made a VHS duplicate at a convention. 
Bossy flight attendant Tegan Javanka accidentally stows away on the TARDIS, having mistaken it for a real police box when her car suffers a flat tire. The Master kills Tegan's aunt and materializes his TARDIS around the Doctor's TARDIS, causing a recursion loop. After the Doctor breaks out of the loop, a mysterious figure, the Watcher, tells the Doctor go, to go to the planet Legopolis, where the inhabitants can manipulate reality through pure mathematics. The Master mucks things up, Nissa joins the TARDIS crew at having been hypnotized by the Master, who seems to look exactly like her dead father. Due to mathematical mistakes, the TARDIS starts shrinking and the universe is threatened with destruction through entropy. The Master flees to Earth and the Doctor defeats his evil plan, although the Master gets away, of course, after having caused the Doctor to fall from a radio telescope to his regeneration. A few years ago, I saw this one in a movie theater with a bunch of other local fans. It's a great experience to see it on the big screen. So, we come to the end of my all-time favorite Doctor's era. Thanks for letting me ramble on with these mini-reviews prompted by the Starlog article. Okay, quite a few board games were released in 1981. Here's some of the more popular ones, or we could say some of our favorites. Believe it or not, the legendary game Axis and Allies was released that year. Dark Tower. That was one that I remember seeing the commercials for in it and wanted it so badly. Big time collector's item. It's in the hundreds of dollars, but recently was re-released and upgraded for modern day activity. The revised version of Dungeon came out. Star Viking. Cosmic Encounters, expansions number six and seven. Champions. Space Empires. The Dungeons and Dragons expert set. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Escape from New York. Dragon Slayer. And one of the most popular mass market board games of all time since Monopoly, Trivial Pursuit came out in 1981. Do you remember what a big deal that was? Yeah, everyone had it. That seemed to me the first tabletop game that I ever remember adults playing. From my eyes, it always seems like either teenagers, maybe when it came to the games that you, you would find in hobby shops, there would be some adult appeal to it. But when it came to Trivial Pursuit, it just seemed like everybody wanted to play that game. Every adult. I remember going to school and teachers were playing it. It was just a phenomenon. Yeah, we, we played it in my school where the teacher just had cards and would read the questions. So, yeah, it was, it was really popular. Everyone talked about it. When it comes to space games, nobody compares to Atari. Excuse me. Have you compared them to Intellivision? Intellivision? Sure, they've got great space games, like Intellivision Space Battle. I didn't know. And now there's Space Armada and the incredible Astro Smash. I didn't know. Here, compare for yourself. Intellivision Space Games from Mattel Electronics. Once you compare, you'll know. Starlog Magazine, issue number 48, cover date, July 1981. Fifth Anniversary Spectacular. Harrison Ford. The name of the game is Hero. So we have an interview here with Harrison Ford, who had just come off 
the red-hot movie Empire Strikes Back. And now, starting out this new pulp-style 1930s adventure entitled Raiders of the Lost Ark. And he expresses how excited he is to do something different from Han Solo, but he does admit there are certain qualities that are very similar to that character. Well, he also said that the script had some similarities, and he he consciously told, he actually told them, you know, to change it just so that it wouldn't be so much like Han Solo. Which was smart on his part. Yeah, he didn't want it to look like the same character. He didn't want to look like he could only play this type of character. And I'm sure he didn't want to be typecast. (laughs) It's funny that he mentions that this was the joint venture of George Lucas and Steven Spielberg, two of the hottest directors of that time, and how they were explaining to him what his character would be. His character would be sort of a Doc Savage hero. And he says, I have no idea who Doc Savage is. I didn't grow up in that era. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But also, it mentions that he was not the first choice. Tom Selleck was originally chosen to play Indiana Jones. It didn't work out with Tom. And Starlog asked him, what do you think about being the second choice? He didn't seem to mind. Yeah, he said um, the directors don't usually choose people they've worked with before, which I'm not sure that's really true. But maybe I think it w- it's the exact opposite now. <laughs> yeah, maybe it was true back then. Um, yeah, and Tom Selleck was well. He went on to do Magnum PI, but he also did a he did a movie that was similar to Raiders. High Road to China. Yeah, after this, that's so right. it was like so you could tell that it was the idea. Like, well, if he was the ori- the original idea for Indiana Jones, he could still play that type of character in another movie. I remember seeing. High Road to China because they build it as a Raiders of the Lost Ark-esque movie. We would call, I remember seeing it at a theater in Hamden, Connecticut on Whitney Avenue, and you would call up, we'd call up the theater and they'd say, and now showing on this week is going to be this movie on this week, and then on coming High Road to China, a very much Raiders of the Lost-esque kind of movie. And it was usually the, the owners of the movie theater would be talking on the phone with this recording. So Tom Selleck did get to do his pseudo-Indiana Jones. We, If we were wondering what it would be like having Tom Selleck as Indiana Jones, watch High Road to China. Yeah, which wasn't as popular. Not at all. But he goes on to say, excellent interview, and there's a ton of spoilers, ton in this article, because this article came out just before the release of the movie. It talks about him lowering into the well of souls and being surrounded by snakes. And they asked him, were you afraid of snakes? And he wasn't. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty amazing, considering the amount of snakes in the movie and the fact that they had poisonous snakes. And he wants to say he wasn't afraid. Okay. They, they did, you know, there was, there was something about the making of the movie on TV where they did show that there was some plexiglass between him and the snakes, at least for... Oh, I didn't know that, you really. Know, you know, like one of the, the scene where they had that, that cobra right. right in front of his face, there was a piece of plexiglass between him and the snake. Oh, interesting. And you could see it after you, after you know it's there, I noticed it. You talked about the fast pace of Raiders and how he had very little downtime in comparison to other movies. But then I look at it as he's the ultimate star in this movie. Yeah, he was in what just about every scene. And, and of course, there was a lot of action in it. And, you know, in the interview says they had 
I mean, even though they did have a stunt double, he did a lot of his own stunts. So that took a lot of time doing all the different shoots. And he said that they choreographed the fight scenes in a specific style of fighting that would make sense for him. And see, I'm not one that can notice these differences in fighting styles, but I do find it interesting when there is a lot of thought put into it, especially with timepiece or period piece movies, which this essentially is. Things would operate differently and move differently in the 1930s, which this totally puts you in the feel. Yeah, he said he um he choreographed with the stunt coordinator to make it look more um of, of his own style, which is really cool. And the uh, the dragging behind the car, which he talked about a lot, and they didn't say in the interview, but I know they actually dug a trench for him to be dragged behind the car, which is another thing that like that I didn't notice until I knew it was there, and then I could tell it was there. But the but they dragged him more slowly when they were trying to get the close-ups of his face. That makes sense, yes. Yeah. I like it how he's, they, they have to talk about Star Wars because there's no way you're going to talk about Harrison Ford at this time period and not say, well, how did Star Wars affect your career going forward? And he fully admits, he goes, I am very thankful for being part of Star Wars and having it in my life. But he has lost his animidity. And it's kind of frightening because he couldn't go anywhere without being recognized. And it's like that today. That's why he has to seclude himself in Montana. Just he can't go anywhere. Yeah, and it happens to a lot of movie stars. I, I do think it's neat that he said he, he appreciates Star Wars. I mean, that's what he said back then. He kind of he doesn't really want to talk about it as much now. It's funny because they asked him, he say Star Wars and Ford's subsequent movies have brought him a certain amount of sudden wealth, an occurrence with what some actors have difficulty dealing this has not been a problem for Ford. First, he explains, I put my money in shoeboxes. Then I had to use pillowcases, and after that, sleeping bags. Now I have a whole garage full of money. My car is in the street. Personally, I can't understand ever having a problem dealing with money. Those actors who run into problems with wealth are people who bought just too many shoes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember reading that back then. You remember um, reading when it came out back yes. in 81. Yeah, yeah. It was funny. I don't know if he really, did he mean that as a joke? I mean, <laughs> yeah. I think so, because, yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't he have put his money in a bank? So they ask him, what's next? Well, before finding out what all the details are, he will be in Ridley Scott's Blade Runner and Revenge of the Jedi. You want to talk about a hard-working actor? Early 80s, he was just top movies of all time. Yeah, the Star Wars movies and the Indiana Jones movies. You're not kidding. Yeah, so it was neat that they mentioned, um, yeah, so he was also doing Blade Runner at that time. He knew he would be doing it. And a another um, cult classic, even though it wasn't as big a financial hit. And they said he would be in Revenge of the Jedi because he was put in the carbonite because... He wasn't exactly sure he wanted to be involved in Star Wars anymore. Right. So first of all, this is back when they were still calling it Revenge of the Jedi. Yep. I can't stress it enough. Starlog Magazine was our internet. This is where you got all the cool news. The George Lucas Saga. Chapter 1. A New View. And so this is very interesting. It is a interview conducted by Kerry O'Quinn 
then the publisher of Starlog Magazine, with George Lucas. With me to t- discuss this interview is... Joe Molinero with Rule the Galaxy Podcast. All right, so Joe, let's let's put a timestamp on things. We're roughly the same age. What was your view of George Lucas back in 1981? Well, in 1981, uh, I was 10. So as a kid, you looked at this guy who created Star Wars, and now Empire's out already. And all you're thinking about is that next movie. He was kind of like... A, a different, maybe not a godlike figure, but almost a Santa Claus mixed with a godlike figure, bringing us something that we were craving. Right? It just yeah. filled that void and and made us just brought us so much joy. So yeah, he was a great person and somebody you looked up to. Yeah, totally, totally. And it's interesting. So George Lucas is very casual in his interviews. Uh, very different from his contemporaries. We see he's wearing jeans, sneakers. Yep. He's not in an office. He's sitting on – of course, it's the 80s, so everything is rust and brown. Yeah, I, I, I look at his furniture <laughs> that he's doing this interview on. It reminds me of my house from 1981. So, yeah, I agree. And I do love that he's in sneakers and so laid back, right? Not a suit, not some big press gig. He's just yeah. being George. Yeah. And so the interview starts off uh, talking about Kerry O'Quinn says that when he was growing up, you got to figure at this time, Kerry O'Quinn was in his 40s, so his movie-making hero was Walt Disney. Mm-hmm. And so he says when he was growing up, Walt Disney was the one that had the greatest amount of imagination and how anything Walt Disney did in the 40s, 50s, 60s, was the stamp for family value, family fun, really broadening the scope. And he makes a statement. He's like, you are like this generation's Walt Disney. It's so amazing. You and I were just talking about that. To think that here we're talking about 1981. They're talking about the relationship about Disney and Star Wars and George Lucas and Walt Disney. And here we are, 2022, and we're (laughs) seeing that realization. Um, I think all of us back then even thought – they could build a Star Wars land just from the movies they made in the original trilogy, and here we are with a with a Star Wars kind of you know Galaxy's Edge at Disney. So uh, yeah, and and George brought a lot of people joy, just like Walt Disney did for sure. And so it was this early on people were making that connection of every couple decades or so somebody comes by that breaks the mold, and George is one of those people. Uh, he said, George, what are you doing right now? And he said, well. I get up early in the morning, and I'm working on my next Star Wars movie entitled Revenge of the Jedi. And then he continues to work on Raiders of the Lost Ark. I mean, let's face it. You have Raiders of the Lost Ark and Return of the Jedi. We'll just that whole entire trilogy. Iconic films all the way around. But I, I know I still have the poster from Revenge of the Jedi. My son got it for me. Uh, he went and found it at an old flea market or antique mall. And to have that and to think about Revenge of the Jedi being mentioned in 1981, huge deal. This magazine was our internet. This is what we looked at to kind of see that next. We didn't have somebody feeding us on Twitter or something every few minutes what the next movie was going to be. We had to get in the magazine form. Oh, totally, totally. I mean, there's, that's what we're, we're sitting here together, and we're actually touching the magazine. Here, take a big sniff. Smell it. Ah, love it. <laughs> love it. I mean, there's nothing like having print media yeah. like this, right? You know, I've, I've switched over to a lot of audiobooks now I've gotten older just because I can do that and, and ha- still do other things in my time. But there was nothing like opening up that fresh magazine or that fresh book and getting that smell yeah. to start with. Yeah. 
Okay, so Carrie Quinn goes on to say, do you realize that you are a cultural hero to a lot of kids and, quite frankly, a lot of adults as well? And George says, yeah, I, I do realize that. People come up on me on the street, even in restaurants. People go up to him. They recognize who he is. And he says it's very different looking at the way movies are now in comparison to when he was growing up. He says – you know, Gone with the Wind was a big box office hit, but it didn't make Victor Fleming a cult hero. That's a that's actually a profound statement when you think about that. Well, you know, you wish, and I, and I kind of hope nowadays that more people would want to be that moral compass, which I think George was doing. He wasn't telling you how to be right. He was just pointing in the direction of... You know, there's good and there's evil, and you should you should strive to have good, right? So that's where that 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 icon kind of status came from is that everyone left those movies and wanted to be the hero, and and they wanted to have something to aspire to. And and George put that out there for all of us. He said that um, he actually became a director because he thought he'd be able to remain anonymous. <laughs> <laughs> and when you, th- I mean, just with okay, let's look at before George Lucas. As a kid, the only director that I knew that was a big name was Alfred Hitchcock because I would watch late at night, Twilight Zone, Alfred Hitchcock, Star Trek, the, you know, so Gene Roddenberry, Winnicott, but those were TV. Alfred Hitchcock was unique in that he straddled movies and TV. Uh, can you think of anyone that was a big name in the sci-fi fantasy world George Powell? But even then, the average person doesn't know what he looks like, right? No, no I, I wouldn't even begin to tell you. I mean, it's amazing that you think of Hitchcock because of the way, just like Stan Lee in the recent MCU, we would insert himself in those little bits. And Absolutely. It, so that stood out to you. Not only were the movies great, but you always knew you were going to get that cameo, right? Did, did you watch it with your parents and they would highlight that with you? Or how did you know about it as a kid? I, I just – I got into the movies. My, yeah, my yeah. parents watched those movies. And I became, I mean, I love still the Hitchcock movies, but I'd always see that and I would wonder, who is that? And they would tell you, okay, that's Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah. That's the guy who did it. And here's Lucas doing the same thing without inserting himself into yeah. the original trilogy. Now, he did put himself in the prequels, but <laughs> in that small little role. But but in the original trilogy, he still was the guy behind the camera or the guy writing and not really inserting himself into it. He goes on to say that it is kind of problematic because he's a shy person. He likes his personal space mm-hmm. it, and when you think about it he is not one even in the early days of conventions to hit the convention scene like he let his work do the speaking for him he goes on to say that he did the interviews that he had to do yeah i think he was much more that's if i'm not mistaken he surrounded himself with people mm-hmm. that were his voice right they would go out to yeah. these conventions they would go sell the product even before the first star wars movie came out he had people hitting the conventions going to the comic book shows and and being his voice, and he was. I mean, he still is today, that guy behind the scenes. I mean, it's a, it's, he's a mystery, really. All right, so they asked him, what are some of your inspirations? He goes on to say, I love the Republic serials like Flash Gordon. And we know that if he had the rights to Flash Gordon, oh, yeah. that would have been what he made. <laughs> Correct. And he grew up reading DC Comics, especially Batman and Superman, and he was a big fan of Donald Duck and Scrooge McDuck. (laughs) Well, it's a good mixture there. But, I mean, if you look at all those things that he's talking about, think about Flash Gordon, Batman, and Superman. It's not until today that Batman's that brooding, dark character. Superman, Batman, and Flash Gordon were the all-American people that 
you were like, let's strive to be like them, right? Yeah, and so yeah. he had that instilled in him, and so he could create a character like Luke Skywalker that was this wholesome young person out of nowhere that went on to change the galaxy, right? And I think he used those characters from when he grew up. And this is an interesting character study because they said, what kind of books did you read? Again, counter that with so many others. He was not reading Robert Heinlein. He was not reading Arthur C. Clarke or Ray Bradbury. He said his favorite books were Treasure Island, Swiss Family Robinson – and when you think about it, Star Wars isn't really science fiction. It's space fantasy. So look at his background. Well, and again, you just mentioned those two names. And when I think when I go to Disney mm-hmm. and when I go to Disney World and I see Smith Valley Rob- Smith Family right. Robinson, uh, you know, the, the complex there they have and, and things like that. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's just a good fit all the way from 40-plus years ago to now. So, yeah. Then they ask him about critics. They say that. Critics say that Star Wars is way too simplistic. How do you feel about that? And he says, well, he just accepts the criticism. Some have said that he's taken The Wizard of Oz and turned it inside out. He realizes that he's not making movies on the level of Stanley Kubrick. (laughs) I mean, you know what? There's something fabulous about being able to go into a movie and not have to overthink it. Right? Yeah. I mean, there, there <laughs> is that's a criticism of that era. Right. Again, we're going back in time, and this was a criticism. You know, I talked to, I, we did on our podcast once a, a study of Christianity versus Star Wars. Mm-hmm. And what we looked at was in the 70s, coming out of Vietnam, coming out of Watergate, and then every movie was dark. Every movie was, was dark in the was, 70s. Yes. And him, silent running, right? Yeah, like, I mean, everything. You mean Jaws, you mean Towering Inferno, Stalling Green. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, so, you have George Lucas coming in and saying, I want to give something wholesome and something for people to look at and feel good about. And and that's where Star Wars was. It was in that little wholesome nugget that he put together that 40-plus years later, 45 years later, we're still talking about it today. <laughs> now, that's a perfect segue because Carrie O'Quinn says, "Has have these films changed lives? And he says, I assume it has. I have my own personal feelings about what I think about the movie, but – and then Carrie says, what are they? George says, I don't want to accept your uh, upset your readers too much, but it's just a movie. It's no big deal. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he, it's amazing. It's amazing that a guy who, who can sell something for $4 billion had bet way back in 1981 could go, yeah, it's just a movie. But, but I look at it, and, and you and I are similar ages, and so many things in my life – have like a milestone connected to Star Wars, you know, whether it was when I was getting married, when it was when I, I was having kids, you know, when I was growing up, Star Wars came into play in each of those things. Mm-hmm. And so has it changed my life? I don't know if it's changed it, but it's been such a huge part of my life. You know, what the funny thing is, has it changed my life? My So the first convention I ever went to was a Star Trek convention in the 80s. And my brother and I were hooked forever. Comic books, Star Trek, Star Wars, sci-fi, you, you just yep. name it. And my dad didn't get it. He's oh, like yeah. a sports guy and everything. But he said years later, you know, your kids were good kids. You didn't do drugs. You didn't get in trouble. You didn't rob cars. You didn't like so, you know, spending all our money on this stuff did change our life for the positive. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you know same thing here. My dad does not get it. My dad's uh, – <laughs> 70 now. So it was past his time. Mm-hmm. But 
you know, um, you're exactly right. We could be spending our money on a lot worse things. And to spend them on something that's wholesome and that makes us happy, um, it's a good hobby. It's a good thing to have in your life, uh, you know, if you use it the right way. And, and I think this is a community that brings people together, and, and it started way back then, 45 years ago. And, and you make so many friends through, through the, the sci-fi interest. All right, now this is a strange question. Carrie goes, well, you weren't expecting the kind of success for Star Wars. Is that why you ran off to Hawaii to avoid the premiere? <laughs> well, didn't he go off with Steven Spielberg and start talking about Indiana Jones? Yeah, they had they had to take a break. Yeah. And, and you know, he he does admit that he was kind of scared. He needed a break. He was working to the last minute, and like burnout is a reality when when, when you work twelve hour days like him. You know, let's face it. For all the benefits that Star Wars has given to so many fans around the world. Let's look at what it has done to George's life. It 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 kind of helped destroy his marriage, his first marriage. Yeah, yeah. And and it was think of all the stress and pressure even before social media that he was facing just from being the guy that made Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, so so kudos to him to do this at the expense of the things that were in his life. And when he says I work twelve hour days, that's twelve hours on the lot, guaranteed. Mm-hmm. It's on his mind all the time because Kerry asks him like. What's your satisfaction? Is it the fan adulation, the accolades? He says, no, the film. The film, that's it. That's it, the film. He goes, do you have any time to goof off? George says, no, I have no time. (laughs) He's got more movies. I mean, tell me this wasn't an amazing era to grow up in. It it was. It truly was. And and I think, you know, like you mentioned in this magazine, how many times do we see, oh, there's going to be – three more movies or there's going to be six more movies or there's whatever. So as kids reading something like this without having the internet, our, our imaginations were able to just soar because we had the characters, we had the action figures, mm-hmm. we had the movies and, you know, we had the Marvel comics to keep us busy in the three years in between. Um, so the sky was the limit at that time. Now, the, this is an interesting twist in the conversation. How's the revenge script coming along? George says it's coming. Is it easier than last time? No, they never get easier. They only get harder. Is the trilogy going to wrap up the story? George's response, yes, definitely. No cliffhanger? No cliffhangers. And I keep saying, don't call it science fiction. (laughs) (laughs) So that's amazing. This one that he's saying, okay, these three are it. And and for a guy my age, I was really – okay with i was okay with reading the books the zon books and all that yeah, stuff yeah, post yeah. post the return of the jedi because i felt like it had encapsulated the whole story right the the luke coming to his power taking back you know going against his father and, and redeeming him i felt like the story had really been encapsulated at mm-hmm. that time but there's oh george says there are nine movies he wasn't planning on doing so much a carrie has them is there going to be character continuity amongst all three trilogies? George says no. Possibly the robots, but they weren't originally designed to go through the whole – I mean nobody was designed to go through all three. I'd like to see the go, robots go through them, but I don't know whether they will. How interesting. So it's like it's on George's mind, but he says no, this is the end of it. So I think he's still trying to figure out – well – 
Yeah. I post episode four. I post episode five. This is going to say episode six. <laughs> I open up a can of worms with this now. <laughs> Definitely. Definitely. Hey, what do you think about R2 and 3PO, though? He'd like to see them go all the way through. I think I think huh? all along I've heard that he thought it would be a good way to show the movies through their eyes. Mm-hmm. And so, I, you know, in all reality, I guess they have. Because in all nine movies of the three trilogies, they're they're in each of those. So they have some part to each story. Um, but, yeah, it's really weird to see the fluctuation back and forth of, yes, it's going to be more. No, it's not. The same characters will be in it. No, it's going to be different. Very interesting. Here's George's prediction for the prequel trilogy. He says the next trilogy that is the first one since it's Ben Kenobi as a young man. Same character, different actor. It's the same thing with all the characters. Luke ends up in the third film of the first trilogy just three and a half years old. There's continuity with the characters, but not with the actors, and the look of the films will be different. 1981, he's predicting this. He, he was calling the shots uh, <laughs> quite early. And I love that he had that vision. That's, uh, that's why he is who he is, though. I think uh, that's not something I could pull off. Isn't this amazing to read these yeah. historical documents, though, yeah, yeah. to see the mind of, of George Lucas? It, it definitely is, and it blows you away to think about he had already envisioned a young Obi-Wan Kenobi with a different actor. And, and then let's you know fast forward to later, and they find pretty much the perfect guy to play that role, the lead into Alec Guinness. If at 16 years old you had no idea that you could direct movies, what were you passionately interested in doing in terms of a career? He says, I wanted to be a race car driver at 16. I was a mechanic in a foreign car service, and my, and my ambition was be to a race driver. And he ends the first half of the interview with that. Can you imagine if he ended up did becoming a race driver? I think that's why American Graffiti was what it was. Because of his love for cars. And I think that's why the pod racing scene in the, in the prequels was so important to him. Because it fulfilled that feel of race car driving in the, in the Star Wars universe. So I think that's really, really wild. But cool. I, I've read a lot of things where he was that much into cars. So I can, I can believe it. It would be interesting to see how the world would be different if George Lucas was a uh, mechanic in the <laughs> racing industry or a driver. So, yeah. Hey, thanks so much for joining me in this conversation. Tell our listeners a little bit about your podcast. We're going to put in our show notes a link to it. But sure. So you can follow us. Um, on. We, we bo- mostly stay on Twitter just because it's easy to interact with people. It's at Rule the Galaxy SW for Star Wars, SW at the end, Rule the Galaxy SW. But the podcast is Rule the Galaxy. It was originally my son and I. We wanted to rule the ga- galaxy as a father and son. Um, he had to hop off and take some jobs that took him away from what we do. So I grabbed my friends and family who were passionate about Star Wars, and weekly we talk about it. We bring in guests. We, bring, we brought in authors. We brought in audiobook performers. We brought in, brought in people who are in the Star Wars world. And, um, and we've been doing this now for two, two plus years. And it's been great because, like you mentioned earlier, here we are. You know, I'm a 50-year-old guy, and I'm making new friends in the Star Wars community that I wouldn't have met otherwise. So you can check us out. We're on all podcast channels. We do some YouTube. We do some Facebook, but mostly Twitter and the podcast. Gathering together from across the universe, or at least portions of the country, three men come together to form a triangle of idiocy. In this corner, Lou Melagrana. Do you want an Atlas body in seven days? Then my advice, join the Amigo-like Facebook group. 
Max Overnighter, down to you. Hi, I am Max Overnighter, contributor to the Amigo-like Facebook group, and I was also the first one on my blog to order sea monkeys. My friends were not impressed. How about you, Rich? I'm Rich Hurley, also known as Dr. Durant, and you can find me at Dr. Durant Sanctum on YouTube. I own a pair of X-ray spectacles. I can see through time and space itself, beyond the beginning of time, the eye that sees all. <gasps> He's not wearing any underwear. Comic Books of 1981. Joining me with in this conversation is my main man, Jamie. Previously, we talked about many decades worth of comic books, but now let's talk about 1981 in comics. A colossal year, I'm thinking right off the bat. Frank Miller takes over full writing duties on Daredevil with issue number 168 and creates Elektra. I mean, Daredevil was a pretty, it was a fairly low-key character to that point. But in the Frank, but the Frank Miller run, I mean, that one just absolutely ignited a huge popularity in Daredevil, and pretty in, and it was one of the comics that started changing the whole paradigm about how people perceive comics. Instead of it being like little little kid, no imagination, little minds, and that it's showing that this was a huge crea- huge creative outlet, and that this thing was more was a hundred percent on par with novels or anything like other contemporary writing or more well-respected writing. It raised the maturity level. Oh, without question like that. I mean, this one, the Frank, Frank Miller, especially because this is the one where he starts, he introduced the characters, Electra, Bullseye, the Kingpin has such an instrumental hand in this because, because all of this is leading towards the death of Electra. And then subsequently after that, the Born Again series, which is a which is one of the quintessential storylines of the eighties. Also, nineteen eighty one, Days of the Future Past, and Uncanny X Men number one hundred forty one and one hundred forty two. Now, this one's just. I mean, this one's one of the. <laughs> this one's one of the quintessential X Men storylines of all time. You have, you have basically Kitty Pride and Rachel Summers, who's going to be known as the Phoenix later who are shown in future New York City and sent back through time to try to thwart the fact that Senator Robert Kelly is going to be assassinated. And, I mean, this thing is, it's so it's so big and so crucial is the fact that the 2014 movie was pretty much based on this storyline. Now, this thing is going to set off a lot of things. You see the Sentinels. You see future X. It lays the foundation for future X-Men stories as well. I mean, you have... You have Rachel Summers, who becomes a huge character, which is she's the alternate future daughter of Cyclops as well as Jean Grey, and you and this is going to has the the Freedom Force in it, in which the Freedom Force pretty much introduces us to Mystique. Mystique becomes a gigantic character not only in the comics but out of the comics as well, because you see her played by uh, you know like John Stamos's was her name Rebecca Romaine Stamos, and then later Jennifer Lawrence. You see Mystique, you see Pyro, you see Avalanche, uh, the other turkey I can't think of right now. But yeah, I mean this, this it's it is absolutely huge, and this is, yeah, and this is one of the ones where Chris Claremont is, and John is it John Byrne? Did he write the? Would he draw this? Mm-hmm. No, he draw this. Yeah, yeah, he drew this. So yeah, this it's 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 big. Nineteen eighty one also. Talking about John Byrne, this is when John Byrne began his 62-issue run as the writer and artist on Fantastic Four, starting with issue number 232. 
if you follow comics in the 80s, there's chances are you've read this. John Byrne. There are two characters in which he wrote outstandingly, outstandingly well. Doctor Doom and as well as She-Hulk. And this, this run sets it up. Is the, during this run you see, you'll see his take on the Inhumans as well. You see the fact that they go to the negative zone. It start it starts laying in other foundations for other things as well. You see the death supposedly the death of Doctor Doom in a battle with Terax. Uh, later you later you see uh, Sue Storm slash Invisible Woman. She gives or she gives birth to or give she gives she has a stillborn child. Uh, yeah, I mean this thing is pretty much pivotal for a lot of future storylines as well i mean not only did he not only did he write it he drew it which was which was amazing in itself and also teen titans marv wolfman and george perez's masterpiece it was amazing by this time i think that they were at their peak in 1981 early 80s in general well yeah i mean if you should like if you look at some of those old comics, they in the back cover it would show you the most popular comics, and it would rank. It was X Men and Teen Titans. They're always neck and neck. Yeah, which I mean only makes sense. I mean, if you think about the the viewership or the readership that they were going for back then were probably teenage around teenage people, and they could absolutely relate with the characters. That's why Spider Man's always been popular because. He's a young adult, and you, you can empathize with the struggles that he goes through. I knew that I was I found a character that I was going to follow forever. Jeanette Kahn over at DC Comics becomes the president. And during her, her tenure was amazing because of the fact that she understood horror. She understood personalities. She was pivotal in bringing Alan Moore over onto DC, onto Swamp Thing. Yeah, she was cool. I really liked her. Star Wars comics were still in publication, and this was post-Empire Strikes Back, giving us some more details about things going on in the world of Star Wars. I remember during this time period, I loved reading those comics. Yeah, it just seemed like it was the comic extension of the universe. It gives you a lot of ideas of how where things could have gone instead of this abomination they put out with the past three films, or four films really, if you count Solo. Hello, Starlog cats and kittens. Thank you to our host for having me, Bruce Bertner, to uh, give you a, a critique of issue 48 of Starlog concerning John Carpenter, who is my hero. And I thank you, the audience, for listening. And apparently you like what I do because I keep getting asked back. So thanks for listening. And here we go. Let's do a deep dive. Carpenter in this issue speaks first of uh, Escape from New York, but... How do we know John Carpenter and why is he important? Because John Carpenter established the Halloween franchise on a minuscule budget. He made back tens of millions of dollars for his investors and created the boogeyman of all boogeymen. Better than Jason Voorhees, better than Freddy Krueger. You've got the shape, as they once referred to him, but also known as Michael Myers. No, not the cat from Saturday Night Live, the original Michael Myers, which is a phenomenal, I mean, just the best boogeyman you're ever going to have because you can't kill him. Jamie Lee Curtis, phenomenal job. 
a cast of unknowns, again, a phenomenal job. And they just took that movie and ran with it. And uh, here we are almost 50 years later, still talking about Halloween. Came out in 77, saw it in the theaters, loved it. Saw the reissues. Halloween 2, pretty good. Halloween 3, we won't speak of. The franchise uh, continues to live on to this day. So that's John Carpenter. Next up, he did The Fog, of course, and that was Adrian Barbeau, always going to love her. Loved her in Maud, loved her in uh, uh, the uh, Creep Show episode she did, the Creep Show uh, vignette where Call Me Belly. She was great with uh, Hal Holbrook and uh, The Creature in the Crate. And uh, then also uh, we know her from Escape from New York. She plays a part in Escape from New York. Of course, it doesn't hurt to be married to the director. But she was a talent. I mean, Adrienne Barbeau, two big assets. Sorry, pardon the pun. She's a great actress. I love her to this day. Never going to say a bad word about her. She brings the goods. She is an actress to be remembered fondly. And I do. But uh, Escape from New York, a lot of it he deals with uh, the interview, talks about the special effects houses, uh, basically John Dykstra, who did 2001 A Space Odyssey, as well as uh, Universal Heartland. And he wanted them to uh, quote him a price for some of the effects in the movie that he needed done. There's a scene where the glider goes between the two twin towers, and he needed just basic effects. Didn't want to spend a lot of money. He only had $7 million, and they quoted him sky-high budgets, and they wanted to do his storyboards. He said, I know what I want. Can you give me what I want at a price? They couldn't do it. Uh, at the price he wanted. So he went with uh, the people who did Battle Beyond the Stars, which is a Roger Corman uh, production. And uh, they gave him exactly what he needed. He cut it into the film. And uh, it looks pretty good to me. I mean, the movie doesn't have to have phenomenal effects. It's just a it's a uh, basic action-adventure movie featuring Kurt Russell as Snake Plissken. And... Uh, Russell was really trying to change his image because he had done a lot of Disney films like The Computer War, Tennis Shoes, and The Strongest Man in the World. He was a uh, teen actor, and I think he was trying to break through to uh, become a... Uh, and, and he did succeed at that. He wanted to become more of a uh, mainstream Hollywood entity. And in Snake Plissken, he really did change his image. The other thing that helped him that uh, really uh, gained him attention was he played Elvis Presley in a John John Carpenter-directed biopic on the ABC TV movie, and he did a great job as Elvis. I mean, just knocked it out of the park. So uh, he played that, and he, of course, did Escape from New York. And uh, the beginning part of the uh, interview deals mostly with uh, the effects houses and that Carpenter was amazed at how much... Not that he was bad-mouthing Dykstra and these guys, but he just thought that they were... uh, a little high-priced for what he needed for his film, and he only had $7 million. So he had to really be uh, frugal with his money that he was uh, allocated. And the movie shows. I mean, you know, we can watch it here, you know, 40 years later, and it really holds up. It's a well-done film. The uh, effects are well done for the time. I mean, now, you know, we might laugh at some of them, but, of course, back in the day, that was... That's what they had, and that's what they used. Now... That movie, of course, we know went on to, you know, make its money back, and it's well thought of today. It wasn't, you know, wasn't uh, an Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, but it made its money. But he goes on to speak of 
in a future kind of way a couple of different movies. One got made, one didn't. He wanted to do a Western called Diablo. And uh, I guess it might have starred Kurt Russell, but the budget would have been about $15 million. And he was hoping to get financing from uh, Dino De Laurentiis, but it never happened. To my knowledge, he's never made a a Western called Diablo uh, because I would have seen it and I would know. But the other movie that did get made with a lot of DNA from the movie Alien, as well as Invasion of the Body Snatchers, but was its own thing, The Thing. (laughs) Pardon the pun. The Thing did, of course, get made in 1982. If you haven't seen it, I need you to run out right now, rent it, buy it, stream it, whatever you've got to do. Find the 32-millimeter print and screen it immediately because that movie is phenomenal. And it's best if you can see it on a big screen, please do. But if you've got a big screen TV, that'll do. It's 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 just uh, it's wonderful. Uh, the basic bones of the story is, is that there are several gentlemen who are basically scientists and some are military, but they're stranded on an Antarctic uh, base and they're uh, scientists who uh, do weather or whatever they, they do. They test their, and of course they find an uh, out of this world body, an extraterrestrial, and this thing melts and uh, it becomes reactivated and uh, it first takes over a dog and then it uh, one by one takes over each of the men on the uh, on the Antarctic base. Now the original movie, the 1950s thing, starring Toby uh, Toby Hooper or Toby McGuire, whichever I think it's Toby McGuire, uh, is a classic. And James Arness, who is Marshal Matt Dillon on Gunsmoke, is the uh, seven foot tall alien uh, carrot man. And they destroy that creature with electricity. They zap him, and he uh, eventually he shrinks down to a midget. Sorry, midgets. That's what you are. Anyway, uh, he shrunk down, and uh, they eventually they destroy him. But that's not the end of the story, folks. In the short story, Who Goes There by the uh, science fiction editor John Campbell, the, uh, the men on the base, the only way they can uh, test to see who's alien versus human being is a blood test and they take uh, take a copper wire and heat it up and put it in the blood and then hilarity ensues you will love the scene if you haven't seen the movie i i envy you because you're in for a delight if you have seen the movie you're you're right now you're cheering me on saying yes yes that's wonderful the other good scene is uh one of the men looked to have a heart attack so uh the guy who played the main lawyer in uh, L.A. Law, whose name escapes me, is a doctor. And he takes the uh, AED paddles, the electric paddles, puts them on the guy's chest. Well, of course, his chest open up to reveal a giant mouth with very sharp teeth. And they take uh, the guy's arms at the elbow <laughs> and uh, proceed to uh, take his arms off. And blood spurts everywhere and a lot of fun is had. Rob Bottin, the effects uh, Creator does a great job on this show. There are so many different effects. I mean, this is a big film, and they just did a wonderful job. This is, of course, 1982. This is before computer-generated effects. This is all done what we call in-camera. They create the effect on the on site and then, you know, have at it and start filming. And the effects are state-of-the-art for that time, but they still hold up today. Forty years later, they look just sensational. I can't say enough good about them. 
The plot, of course, is wonderful. Kurt Russell, the actors, guys like Wilford Brimley, Richard Masor, these these gentlemen all very believable. It's like, yeah, these guys could be on a compound in the Antarctic during a snow blizzard, and I believe every bit of it. And, of course, he had not yet made the movie. When he's doing the interview, he's talking about his ideas and stuff, but he's pretty much everything came to fruition that he spoke of in the article. And going back, hindsight being 2020, he was almost... Uh, it's like a prophet because he was so spot on about what he was looking forward to filming and what actually got on the screen. And I remember reading this issue and saying, I cannot wait to see this movie. And it was it was everything you could ask for. What hurt it was in 1982, of course, we had E.T. and we had Star Trek The Wrath of Khan and we had several other movies, Blade Runner. These all came out at the same time. If they'd either put the movie six months before or six months after all these blockbusters, I think it would have made even more money at the box office. It would have caught that audience of me. Where it did do well, of course, was VHS, video cassette, beta, what have you. During the early uh, inception of the VCR, this movie either, you know, movies of, of that era cost a hundred bucks to buy, but they rented like like hotcakes. And then, of course, later on DVD and Laserdisc, this movie has never been out of print and has never stopped making money. It's always been a sought-after film. It's fun to show kids of this generation and say, hey, look, you want to see something good? Watch this. And I think it, the reason it does better is a real effect when you're filming it in camera. It just looks more real. A computer-generated effect, yeah, the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park are wonderful. I love them like anybody else. But to have a real on-the-set prop that you're filming, it just it's different. Anyway, it's a great movie. It's a great article. John Carpenter, great director. And uh, Adrian Barbeau, Kurt Russell, Wilford Brimley, the actors he's worked with, Donald Pleasance, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis, the actors and actresses he's worked with have uh, really all benefited from uh, working with him because this guy, he brings the goods. He brings it. Fifth anniversary greetings. As with all these anniversary issues, Starlog receives a variety of letters from those in the professional aspect of the industry, whether it be actors, writers, producers, here are some of the greetings that were sent to Starlog, congratulating the magazine on five years in print. And each one, if you have the physical magazine, you'll notice includes an autograph under each star's picture. I always loved seeing these, seeing the pictures and, you know, reading what they said. And I thought it was cool that these stars actually loved Starlog magazine. And, and the fact that they, that the magazine actually printed the the celebrity's autograph in the magazine. So it's like, cool, I have all their autographs. <laughs> Christopher Reeve writes, I like to support anything that encourages fantasy. It's an important element in all our lives. It has to do not only with the films and plays and books and music we expose ourselves to, but also to our personal dreams. So that was a neat thing for him to say. I mean, you know, it kind of makes me wonder, did he really write that or did he have someone write it? But but it was pretty good. I get the feeling he did, though. Oh, okay. But but also you notice how when, when it's got the person's name, right? And then it'll say all the things that, that he did, like like we wouldn't know. <laughs> yeah, he was in Superman? That's amazing. <laughs> David Prowse, actor, Darth Vader, 
says, I never realized that Starlock started up at the same time as I was stomping around Elstree Studios, bringing life to George Lucas's chilling creation, Darth Vader. The Force has been with us all, since I'm especially pleased to be able to share this fifth birthday. As you know, I do the rounds of lectures at science fiction conventions, colleges, and universities. And if you could hear the round of spontaneous applause that goes up when I talk about Starlog being the best science fiction magazine in the world, you would indeed be gratified. More power and force to your pens. Just because you're best in the world doesn't mean you can relax your standards. Keep up the excellent standard, and I'll write for you again in another five years. And I have to agree with him. They did not relax their standards as time went on. I argue and say Starlog got better. Yeah, they kept changing. I mean, they always covered the entertainment industry, but they started covering more and more genres. The brothers Heidelbrandt, who are fantasy and science fiction artists, wrote, Congratulations on your fifth anniversary spectacular. We are happy to be part of your celebration. We feel that Starlog has become a tremendous asset to science fiction and fantasy fans. It's nice to know that someone cares about all of us who believe in the fantastic. Keep up the great work. We wish you years of continued success. That's a good point. Starlog really does care about us as fans. I think they do. That's why they... The communications, the letter section of the magazine was so good, and Starlog would also put their replies. As always, we're going to conclude by considering one of the advertisements that's found in Starlog magazine. This one is a half-page advertisement. It shows a mask of Yoda by Don Post Studios, so it's a full head-covered mask with lifelike human hair. All it says is, Yoda. Here he is, the most lovable character from the Star Wars saga, Yoda. Don Post Studios, the world-famous maker of quality masks and makeup, is proud to announce their limited edition of Yoda masks. Made of durable latex, real hair, and hand-painted, this beautiful mask is officially licensed by Lucasfilm. This is sure to be a collector's item, so order while supplies last. The limited edition yoga mask is being offered for $44.99 plus $2.60 for postage and handling. $45 for a mask back then. It's big money. Yeah, that's actually a pretty scary looking mask in that picture. <laughs> and he's got blue skin instead of green. Yeah, the, the, the photo of it is, is just an odd tint. Yeah, I mean, but even like the way it shows him, it just doesn't look like he doesn't look friendly in it. It doesn't look like a mask like anybody a would mask. want. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know that we had one of these Don Post Yoda masks. Oh, you did. We got it during the like Return of the Jedi era, though, a little bit later. Okay. Yeah. But it was better looking than that one. Well, that kind of looked like that. <laughs> it was green, though. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and join our Facebook group. Live long and may the force be with you. Nanu Nanu. Nanu.